Hey everyone, hey Unfazed listeners, we just wanted to jump in before this podcast and encourage you to vote. We are seven days away from the US election, and this is a pretty important election coming up for a lot of reasons. And Shauna and I just wanted to jump on and say, we know that many of you might think that all politicians are slime balls and that they do nothing for you. Um, and that may be true in some circumstances, <laughs> but... Um, the right to vote is such an important part of a representative democracy and people have died to get access to the vote in this country and around the world. And so mm -hmm. I don't mean to sound hyperbolic, but I think that it's super important. And um, we really encourage you to vote by mail if you can do early voting or a swing by on November 3rd and submit your vote because this election is like many others, but in particular, this election is very, very meaningful. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the biggest piece of the puzzle is making sure that we have a plan, everybody. If you don't have a plan, get one in place. The lines have been historically long, even for early voting. So make sure you have a plan in place. Also, too, if you've already voted, whether you voted by mail or otherwise, make it your business to make sure that other people vote, too. If you have to go get that person that needs to get a ride to the polls, or even if you need to help someone to click on that link to make sure that their vote was actually counted. Either way, please make sure that after you've done your part, help other people to do their part too. And from there, I think we're going to have a fantastic showing for the election. So you can go to vote.gov and all of the information you could possibly want and more is going to be available on that website. And remember, you don't have to research all of the judges and all of the random stuff that's on the ballot. <laughs> that's right. Vote, that's right. Yeah. Just vote for one president and one senator or one ballot measure and you're good, right? Don't feel pressured that you have to do everything if you don't have the time. You don't need all the degrees in civics and American government to get it done. Check the names that you are aware of that align with your interests and your values and let your vote be counted. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, I hear that we have some really outstanding news coming up about the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Awards. I, I know it's coming up soon, so tell me all about it. Yeah, we do. We are going to host a live ceremony for our award winners on November 15th at 4 p.m. Pacific. So it'll be a virtual event so everyone can participate and we're going to do it Oscar style. So the each category, there's Ooh. nine categories and there will be five finalists in each of those categories and we'll be announcing the finalists um, on social media over the coming weeks. Um, but we'll have um, those finalists on screen and they they won't know if they've won. And then Sarah's going to be announcing the winner. Um, and then that person will be spotlighted just like at the Oscars. Um, although, <laughs> you know, they won't be walking up to a stage. Um, they will get to say a few words, but I don't think we'll manage to play loud music if they go over, right, to kind of encourage them to uh, <laughs> exit stage left. But yes, November 15th, 4 p.m. Eastern, um, we're hosting that ceremony. We want as many people to be there to celebrate all these amazing women um, who have done fantastic work in 2020. 
And um, you can sign up to join the event um, on our website, which is outspokensummit.com um, slash awards. Well, I feel like I should like dress up to listen to the awards, right? Like just dress up to log in, you know, put on something fancy, kind of, you know, black tie or something, or at least put on my best kit, right? My favorite kit and wear it while I'm listening to these awards. So um, tell me a little bit more though about how you got there. So who thought of this idea of these awards and um, even the categories sounded pretty amazing. So tell me a little bit about how that came to be. Yeah, this is the second year we've done the awards. So we hosted um, a, a, a real-time in-person event in 2019, if you can believe that there was ever a time when we were able to meet in person. And actually it was Sarah Gross's idea as part of the summit we had talked about for some time that there wasn't really an opportunity to recognize women in triathlon who were doing important work for gender equity and then more broadly diversity, equity, and inclusion in the sport. And so we felt it was really necessary to create this awards program where we could celebrate women from across the country um, and the work that they're doing. Because one of the things we've noticed through putting on Outspoken is that there are amazing women and groups of women and allies doing work all across the United States, but they're not talking to each other. So they're unaware that uh, um, the that folks are doing similar things or working on the same kind of tra trajectory. So Outspoken's intention or one of its intentions is to bring those women together. And so then with the awards, we wanted to highlight and celebrate that work. What's so fab about the awards, I think, is that the nominations come from the community, right? So it's not the outspoken uh, planning mm -hmm. team that develops the nominations. We put out the request, which we did this year, um, and we got over 250 nominations of women oh, doing wow. amazing things um, across mm -hmm. the country. And so we pulled together a selection committee. Um, so we had uh, Gabriela Gallegos, who's the race director um, and owner of Race El Paso, and she puts on the Mighty Mujer Triathlon that some of you might be familiar with. And then uh, Courtney Jacobson, who is a coach um, and also owns Gritlink. And then Trini Willerton, who is the brain behind um, It Could Be Me campaign. And she was also the 2019 Outspoken Woman of the Year winner. Um, and then Jamila Gail Agins, who is a coach, um, and also kind of very active in the um, push for inclusion in the sport and also recently started working for uh, Live Feisty Media. And then Lindsay Glassford, who is our fabulous editor, but also the coordinator of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. So those five folks pulled in all those 250 nominations and developed um, finalists in each category. So we, you know, we thought about what do we do this year in 2020, because it's kind of an odd year. Um, but we realized that women are still doing the work, right? So in the pandemic, mm -hmm. there's still a need, particularly this year, how everything unfolded, to really push gender equity, racial justice and um, connected issues. So we felt that it was really important that we didn't skip a year for the awards. Um, Perhaps, mm -hmm. perhaps more importantly, because we haven't been able to come together at races, we haven't been able to come together at the summit to really find this space and celebrate the women who are doing all this work, often in the background, because we know that women do a lot of work and don't get a lot of recognition for it. So that's yeah. kind of a little bit more about our thought process. 
Uh, well, and you know, this year is especially a great year to find something to celebrate. <laughs> um, and so I'm really excited about celebrating these amazing folks that uh, have been nominated, have been uh, selected. I'm really excited about each and every award. I'm excited just about the meaning of each and every award. Um, I'm looking over here on the website, Coach of the Year, Race Director of the Year, Athlete of the Year, Outstanding Media, Be Bethany Rutledge Memorial Award, Outstanding Spoken Woman of the Year, Pandemic Community Service Award, Social Media Impact Award, and the Lifetime Achievement Award. That's a big mouthful, but um, a lot to say that there's so many different avenues for women to be celebrated. So I'm really thrilled uh, that we have the opportunity to uh, sit back and put on our best digs and watch and wait for the surprised faces <laughs> online. So I'm really excited about that in particular. So um, that's great work, Lisa, and I'm excited about that. But I know that we have someone on the line with us right now who fits into that category that you're talking about when it comes to people who are doing great work um, while also um, in triathlon doing their thing as, as athletes themselves. So um, tell us a little bit about who our guest is today. Well, we are super excited to have Susan Lakey with us. She is an author, journalist, and triathlete. Susan is deaf and has written extensively on inclusion in triathlon. And today we are going to be talking about ableism in triathlon. Um, and so we're very excited to have Susan with us because she's been such a strong voice in this area and we are going to learn a lot. Uh, fantastic. Welcome. Welcome, Susan. How are you? It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on today. Well, I am so excited that you're here. I'm so excited that uh, Lisa was able to make the connection with you. Um, I've been telling uh, Lisa for, gosh, a while now, a month now, that this is my growing edge uh, when it comes to talking about ableism and especially when it comes to endurance sport. But ableism in general is one of my growing edges that I, I hope to be more of a generalist when it comes to particular populations. But this is an area that I'm really, really working hard to pay attention to. So um, I have my notes out. I have my pen, right? here. I'm going to be taking notes, um, especially, look, I, this may be one of the few podcasts that I go back to, um, to listen again, to take notes on things that I might have missed as we were talking together. But I'm so thrilled to have you here and just tell us uh, a little bit more about um, yourself and what you do and specifically um, how you've had a such a profound uh, impact on shedding some light on these conversations that we might not have regularly um, when it comes to ableism and the sport. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm Susan Lakey, and as um, Lisa said, I am a writer and endurance athlete in this space. For about the last 10 years, I've been a contributor to Triathlete Magazine, Podium Runner, Women's Running Magazine, Outside Magazine. Really, I, I focus a lot of my work in the outdoors and endurance sports space. Um, it's something that I'm passionate about. Triathlon and running is something that I really love to do. And in my day job, I guess you could say too, um, I also work as a college professor. I have a doctorate in health education. And so I teach as an adjunct professor on three campuses. And um, teaching is also something that I really love to do. And in both roles, without really realizing it, I've become kind of a touch point, I guess, for talking about 
disability and ability. And so when you say that this is a growing edge for you, I'm used to hearing that for a lot of a lot, a lot of people, I'm the first deaf person that they've ever talked to. I may even be the first disabled person that they've ever talked to. And so I have both the honor and the burden of being a standard bearer, I guess, for people with disabilities. And with that comes defying a lot of stereotypes. It comes with answering a lot of questions. Sometimes they're wonderful, thought-provoking questions, and sometimes they're very ignorant, rude questions. Um, and, and so I had this really interesting experience as a person in the world um, in that I, I am technically a person with a disability, but I love, I accept, I do everything in the mainstream world. Uh, I, I don't identify as part of the deaf community. I, I don't sign, for example. I don't know any other people who are deaf or who use sign language. I'm not really a part of the deaf culture. And so I walk this very strange purgatory of being between the healing world and the deaf world. And uh, sometimes that's really fun because I get to create my own box, right? I can, I can really set my own terms. Other times it's very isolating. And so I find that talking to other people about what I experience really helps me with feeling less alone in the world. And I don't necessarily go out with my, my staff and my crown as Miss Deaf America. That's not how we do it. Um, but instead, I'm just really open about my experience as a deaf person. I don't shy away from talking about it. And this is a really new thing for me because when I first started out as a writer, I never wrote about being deaf. And that's because it just never came up. I was writing about triathlon. I was telling people how to find a good swimmy queen. Um, it wasn't anything that ever really needed to be talked about. And then I got invited to do a podcast. And I realized that nobody knew I was deaf. And that was terrifying because at that time, really the only place to go to get a gaze on what other triathlon um, community members were thinking and saying was slow twist. And um, the slow twist forums are, I'll be very blunt here, they're a cesspool. There's a lot of sexism, ableism, uh, derogatory talk on slow twit. And they were making fun of people with disabilities on slow twit. And so I thought, well, if I talk about being a deaf person in any way, shape, or form in this career, I'm going to be kicked out of this sport. Uh, no one's going to welcome me. They're all going to think that I'm stupid. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'll never get work as a triathlon writer again. And that was terrifying to me. Around that same time, I had met and established a rapport with uh, Jordan Rapp, who was a pro triathlete and also uh, a big fixer on slow twitch. Despite slow twist being what it is, Jordan is an extremely nice guy, probably one of the nicest people I've met in the sport. And so I emailed him very 
awkwardly. Um, and I said, hey, let's see the, the situation I'm confronted with. Should I talk about being deaf? Because I see what people say about people with disabilities online, um, especially in the endurance sports world and on slow twitch. And I'm really scared to do that. And Jordan basically said, you know what? Fuck him. Um, and I really appreciated that. He said, you need to be you, you need to be authentic. I don't think that anybody's gonna give you grace because you've already established yourself as a respected voice in the sport. Um, I don't think that you being deaf is gonna change that. But what really meant a lot to me was that he said, and if anybody does say anything, send them my way. And to have somebody in my corner like that changed everything. Um, and so, I. Since then, I've really become a lot more comfortable with talking about my experience as a person with a disability in this sport. Thank you so much for sharing that uh, context and history. Um, we really appreciate that. And I think your, the loneliness that you identified or the fear that um, the triathlon community will treat you differently, um, I, I think is very powerful and important for people to hear because for many individuals who identify as able-bodied or temporarily able-bodied, they're not necessarily thinking about the experience of disabled people, whatever the disability is, in the context of triathlon, right? It's similar to what Shora and I have talked about with gender and with race, is that if it's not part of your experience, you tend not to understand it or take the time and perhaps minimize it and fail to notice that that doing so has a really painful and isolating effect on folks who belong to communities of which there are there are less in number, right, in the sport of triathlon. Absolutely. And, you know, when we talk about disability, you know, a lot of people assume in the context of triathlon, that means maybe an athlete who uses a wheelchair. Like they go to the most obvious, most visible uh, disabilities that are out there. But in actuality, there's so many different disabilities and there's so many different people with disabilities in the sport. And I also know there are more people who have disabilities and want to be a part of the sport, but they see it as not being accessible for either their particular disability or in general, as being welcoming or accepting of people who are different. Because really, if you think about triathlon, for most people, they assume all triathlon is Ironman, right? And Ironman, of course, is for people who are at the peak of the fitness. This is the pinnacle of sport. You have to be not only <laughs> extremely fit, but you have to be able-bodied in every which way, right? And so, Triathlon is not for people who have any sort of defect or disability. Well, and that I think is one of the bigger challenges with the perception of it um, when it comes to, <laughs> look, Susan, you hit the nail on the head with describing triathlon as equaling Ironman, if you will, because that literally was my first exposure to triathlon. I'm sitting on my couch, you know, eating chips, not fit in any way <laughs> um, and flipping channels. And the first thing I see is, oh, what are these people? First of all, they're in Hawaii. So obviously I want to watch. Um, but after I see that they're in Hawaii somewhere beautiful, oh my gosh, look at these people. And they just swam in that and they just rode their bike how far. And now they're going to do a marathon on the end of that. 
my brain can't wrap around that even as a what I would consider an able-bodied person, I couldn't wrap around that. And so for me, thinking about how ability changes even the perception of who who's in and who's out, basically. Um, and whether it's the smallest thing or the largest thing, whether it's uh, I uh, am either deaf or hard of hearing or whether I just literally have an ingrown toenail. It could be something as small as that that may preclude people from thinking that they can be a part of this world. How do we make sure that we uh, that perception is not reality when it comes to ableism? Well, really, it's about making sport accessible, right? And, you know, you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, when people are, are talking about their experiences in the world, they just view it through their own lens, right? They they assume that their experience is everybody's experience, right? And so if something's not a problem for me, it can't possibly be a problem for anybody. Right. right. No, I understand that that um sense of what do we say, proximity. Um, the proximity of if if I don't feel it personally, or if someone connected to me doesn't feel the inconvenience of it personally, that I can't get it. I don't want to understand it. I don't want to um, do anything to correct it because it's not my problem. It's someone else's problem or someone else's concern and um, trying to um, that proximity, make it a little bit closer for people to have a reason to care, even if it doesn't affect them personally. Um, you know, I care when I see a, a cyclist roll up beside me that has, um, th they may have deaf on their uh, kit or something um, on their kit, letting us know um, this is what you can do to be welcoming, pay attention to what's going on or give a hand signal or anything that I can do as someone who's not part of that community to make those individuals feel comfortable so that we all uh, can do what we love to do in the sport. I think really it starts with redefining what your perception of an athlete is. And really, when we talk about a triathlete, you know, it's like you described, and I was in the same situation as you sitting on the couch eating chips, wondering who the hell these skinny people were. And, um, you know, that's the picture that we paint of athletes. In reality, if we were to show triathlon for what it really was, we would show people of different sizes. We would show people who have different uh, ethnic backgrounds. We would show people who have different um, sexual orientation. We would show people who have different abilities. All of us exist in triathlon. And yet we keep putting forth this template of the skinny, super fat, wrapped, you know, athlete. And um, so when we see that, we think, well, I could never be that. That's not who I am. And so we have to really redefine what it means to be a triathlete, what it means to be an endurance athlete. Because when we do that, then we don't get so alarmed when somebody who doesn't fit the mold comes into the sport. We're not looking at them as someone different. Um, we're not looking at them as someone who must obviously have a harder time in the sport because they're different, um, that we need to go out of the out of our way to accommodate them. Accessibility in triathlon really needs to be the default and not the exception. So often what we see in um, recent events, uh, groups, clubs, they don't make accommodations until somebody with a disability comes in and asks for them. 
And as I shared with you, with my experience, that can be terrifying to come in knowing you're an outsider and saying, oh, by the way, could you also help me? Um, that That's really something that can scare a lot of people off from the sport. But if I'm a person who has a disability and I, I need certain accommodation, I'm not the only one. So why not just make that part of your entire identity? Why not just make everything accessible for everybody? We've created this world in which some things are easy for people and some things are hard for people. Why not just make things easy for everybody to do if they wish? Yeah, I really love the way that you framed that. And Shauna and I have talked about the concept of universal design um, in the educational context, right? And we talked about it a, pod a podcast or two ago um, when it comes to races and how that, that archetypal, that template that you identified of who is the triathlete is always an able-bodied individual. And so then races are designed around that template, right? The kind of assumption of the the general or the average person when they're not perhaps <laughs> so average. And, um, and so the piece that you're articulating there around groups, clubs, races, organizations, not thinking about embedding accessibility into everything they do all the time and only addressing it if someone comes to them is part of the problem, right? So when we think about ableism, which I guess we haven't defined, but I would define as the um, assumption of that everyone is able-bodied and then building systems, policies, and practices around that assumption. Um, we see then that folks are often left out, which then as you identified, Susan, can be terrifying. Um, because not only do you not see people who perhaps look like you, which is true for a lot of groups, um, but the system itself, the racing system, is not built with you in mind. And then that prejudice is even translated into the way other athletes treat you or referees um, assume danger when there is not danger or the lack of provision for different changing facilities or different tools or support in transition, those kinds of things. And then that also gets equated with fairness, right? Well, you don't get to have someone in transition to help you with A, B, and C because that wouldn't be fair, right? Like this assumption of an equal playing field, it's not actually there to begin with. And I think that that's where we see ableism um, just embedded uh, throughout, right? I don't know if you have any any thoughts about that. Absolutely, yeah. So I have a lot of uh, various experiences as an athlete, but also as a reporter. Uh, with what you've just described, I've been in races where after finding out that I was deaf, I was asked to get a um, a partner to complete the swim portion for me. Uh, they said, instead of you doing the swim bike and run, it would be unsafe for you to do the swim. And so the compromise that they offered was that um, I could have my then boyfriend, now husband, uh, complete the swim for me and we could do the event of the relay. And 
it was a race that I had been wanting to do for a really long time. And so to not be able to do the full race myself, even though I had completed many triathlon events prior to that, many open water swim, and I felt safe and confident in completing the swim. Uh, they said because of the, the particular swim, um, they thought that it had a very strong current and they thought that if the current took me away and I got off course, I wouldn't be able to hear a volunteer or lifeguard in a kayak telling me that I was getting off course. And um, my my husband said, to be fair, nobody will. We're all splashing around out there. We've all got earplugs in. We've got like none of us are hearing the volunteers yelling at us. Um, but it didn't convince them. Uh, on the bright side, I got to do a relay event with a really wonderful relay partner. And we ended up taking third place in the relay, which was also kind of cool. Um, but it still bothers me to this day that I didn't get that opportunity to do the race on my own. Um, I've also encountered other athletes with disabilities who have faced other uh, issues with racing. Um, I've had a wheelchair athlete, for example, tell me about a race that he went to, and the race director said here's where the um, disabled parking is, so you have accessible parking. And so he pulled up on race morning early, um, he gets out of the car into his wheelchair and he starts rolling to the race start. But because of the way that they had set the barricades up, he could not get to the race start without taking his wheelchair through deep mud. And so he had to ask people to carry him to the race start. There was no way for him to wheel himself to the race start under his own power. And he said that was one of the most dehumanizing experiences during one of the things that's supposed to make me feel like the strongest person on earth. And I felt that. I felt that in every single cell in my body. Um, you know, there are other cases where we've seen that um, athletes who have visual impairments or who are deaf and blind um, have wanted to race, but they can't find a qualified guide who is the same sex as them. And there were rules in place that if you are a visually impaired athlete and you race with a guide, it has, it has to be the same sex as you. So a woman has to race with a woman, a man has to race with a man. And there were some very fast women who could not find other women fast enough to keep up with them. Um, so they asked if they could have a male guide and they were told no. Um, there have been cases, there was one um, four years ago where there was an athlete who was both, both deaf and blind. And so she uses um, a form of communication where the uh, guide would sign into her hand and she would feel the sign. And she couldn't find a woman who was qualified to not only complete the race at her speed, but also knew how to communicate and her method. But she did find a male. And so she petitioned to be able to have that person help her race. Um, and the fact that she had to go through that, you know, there was complete disregard for her as a person and an athlete. But instead, it was like you said about fairness. Well, it wouldn't be fair that that person would be cheating. And so would you really want to cheat in order to do this race? And 
we don't think of it as cheating to ask for help. We don't think of it as cheating to find a solution to help us raise. We just want to go out there and do the damn thing just like everybody else on that course. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry, Shona. Like I feel like Go for little, it. no no no. I feel like that little um emoji, you know, like that's got <laughs> the red face with the with the little black line across the mouth with the question mark and stuff. That is what I feel like when you were telling that. Story. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and you know what I think is so interesting about it is that, you know, for me the the frustration is the having to be humiliated having to reframe the conversation because the the reframe on the conversation is no we're not necessarily asking for help or asking for anything to be unfair what we are saying or what it sounds like we're saying um, is that we're asking to be able to complete something on our own power whatever that power is whatever that power is Absolutely. And that's why so often what I, I tell people is that we need to stop saying it's really hard for people with disabilities to raise. And instead start saying things like races don't create accessible e events for athletes with disabilities. We need to place the responsibility on the system, not the people who are marginalized by it. And um, if we can keep doing that, then we can stop making the responsibility of accessibility are solely that of the athletes with disabilities because really it's not our job to make you create a world that really is fair. Um, and and honestly, when Lisa said, you know, she had the, the red face and the brain exploding and all of that, I don't feel that because I experience that every single day and every single way. Um, even right now, you know, so my whole life I've been told if you would just be more normal, um, you would fit in and, and people wouldn't make fun of you or people wouldn't treat you differently. Like my whole life, I, I'm very deaf. Um, one ear is completely deaf and the other ear um, is what's called severe to profoundly deaf. Without my hearing aid, I have no hearing, um, which my husband really likes to have some fun with uh, when I'm sleeping. But um, <laughs> but with my hearing aid, I hear about half of what the normal person can can hear, and um, so technically, I qualify for um, a very severe designation of hearing loss. I should technically be signing. I should technically not be speaking. I should technically have gone to a school for the deaf and not a, a mainstream school. I should have done all of these things, but from the time I lost my hearing when I was two and a half years old, it was all about fixing it, right? It was all about making me normal um, and making me not deaf. And so my whole life has been about being not deaf, learning how to lip read, learning how to talk. I was in speech therapy until I was 20 years old. Um, when people would pick on me at school when I was a child, I had a guidance counselor tell me if I was just try harder to be normal, then people wouldn't make fun of me. And so my whole life I've had to deal with this. And I just kept, deal I kept telling myself this promise, you need to try harder and people will like you. You need to try harder, you'll fit in. And and, um, you know, for the most part, I, I'm able to pass. I, I can read laps. Um, I can get by with various accommodations. But um, when the pandemic hit, everything went back to square one because now all of a sudden everybody's wearing masks, right? 
And so they fixed the cupboard and I have no idea what's going on. And when I try to find workarounds for that, when I ask people, for example, to buy masks that have clear windows so I can breathe, um, only one of my friends so far has done, has done that. Um, I, I'm not really surrounded by uh, a world who is okay with saying, you know what? Some people find this harder. I'm not the only deaf person out there. There's a lot of us, a lot of us. And yet we don't really have this world that um, has adapted or even considered the needs of people with disabilities. Um, in this pandemic, I am basically holed up in my house because I'm scared to go out and talk to other people because the faces are all covered. Um, I don't feel raved anymore. I just feel like, okay, well, I tried really hard and I'm still never gonna fit in. I'm still never gonna be normal. Um, and nobody really cares enough to want to try to make it normal for me. Um, and so it goes back to that feeling of isolation. And I'm not saying that because I want you to pity me. I'm not saying that because, um, you know, I'm crying myself to sleep every night. That's just the reality of the world we live in. And um, after a while, you just get tired. You stop trying to change it. You stop trying to fight it. And every now and then you get the opportunity to be honest about what you're doing. And so when you invited me on this podcast, I saw that as that opportunity. And, and so I'm not trying to turn the world overnight, but I do need to be upfront and honest about what I'm experiencing so that maybe other people have that like bald, crazy emoji moment um, and, and they can change themselves and their behaviors. Yeah, and I, everything you've identified is really underscoring what ableism is, right? And it's um, this, this focus on quote unquote normality and who gets to decide who is quote unquote normal, right? I mean, and that is applicable for disability, for race, for gender, for sexual orientation, um, many identity categories for sure. And it's really, really troubling because all of our systems, policies and practices are predicated on this kind of somewhat arbitrary determination of what is normal without much of a thought to the consequences, the lifelong consequences to folks who fit outside that arbitrary category. Um, and I, I, I want to highlight a piece that you said about it not being the responsibility of disabled people to constantly have to request accommodations and changes, and rather it should be the system that changes. And this, um, is a newer concept for me in thinking about disability and uh, a academic colleague of mine introduced me to the concept of the social model of disability, which argues that it's actually the environment that disables people, not, the, not a person's different way of being in the world, right? And so I think about triathlon and I think about the social model of disability and I think triathlon does not embrace that philosophy right? It still places the burden on the individual. Um, and it still approaches disability in particular as something that needs to be fixed or adapted so that you can fit into us, not that we can create a space from the ground up that is available and accessible to every single person, no matter their ability, background, identity. Um, 
And I think that's a really important distinction for triathlon to think about. I mean, it's, it's just, it's very powerful and, um, a whole different, it's a mind shift, right. About how we think about it. Yeah. So when we talk about what triathlon is as far as accessibility goes, um, and, and as far as how athletes with disabilities fit into it, more often than not, the models that we see are we celebrate people with disabilities as inspiration, right? And it really drives me crazy um, because racers don't want to do the work of being accessible for all athletes, but they do want to put the spotlight on those who are willing to overcome the so-called obstacles that the race has created by not being accessible. And um, really, inspiration is God. I, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to celebrate uh, diversity of athletes. But right now, um, you know, media advertising, promotion tend to use inspiration the wrong way. Um, we promote the minority for the benefit of the majority. In the case of disability, we say things like, this person has one leg and still does triathlon. What's your excuse? And so the premise of this, and, and this whole genre, if you are familiar with the term inspiration porn, um, the whole genre of inspiration porn is really based on the premise that someone else, someone else's life must really suck because he or she is different in some way. And we should pity this person. And you should be grateful for your blessings if you are not defective in the same way. And um, that's really messed up because speaking from experience, um, I can tell you that I'm not defective. I don't consider my disability to be a defect. I don't, um, I, I can tell you my life doesn't suck even though I have a disability. Um, you know, I'm happily married. I have a really wonderful career as a journalist. I've written two books. I have a doctorate. I, you know, teach in classroom to students who are really wonderful and they make me believe in the goodness of the world. I have great friends. Um, I have a, a hobby that I love. All of these things are, are really wonderful and, and life affirming. But if you think that despite my disability, I'm overcoming all the suckiness in my life to push my ass to 140.6 miles of swim, bike, and run, that's not why I'm doing this. Um, I'm not doing this to overcome an obstacle. And I'm not doing this for you. I don't need your permission to exist in this world. And yet, often, very often, um, I'm asked if I can be um, a role in some way in various inspiration porn categories. And I always say no, because I, I'm offended that you think that you can exploit my life and my disability um, mm -hmm. to say to all these other athletes you have, look how good you have it. Mm -hmm. um, that really, that's very frustrating. And so we need to really um, step away from this concept of inspiration porn and instead just seamlessly integrate all athletes into our promotion, all athletes into our races, all athletes into our events, our clubs, everything. When you make accessibility the default, people say, oh, wait, that's right. For example, and I'm going to call you guys out on something here, but why don't you have transcripts for your podcast on the website? You know, I can't listen to podcasts. 
I'm Daft. Um, and the way that we're doing this recording right now, we're using video conferencing with live captions. So you guys have been great about accommodating my, my disability to record this podcast. But if I want to listen to this podcast, I can't because there's no video and there's no captions and there's no, no transcript. But if you guys were to just add a transcript for every single podcast you record on your website, not only will that help me, but it will help other people. Um, maybe they're deaf and they need the transcript for that reason. Maybe they can't listen to podcasts at work, but they can read the transcript, right? Um, maybe they just don't really like listening to podcasts, but they love reading. There's so many benefits to accessibility beyond just people with disabilities. And if we can all just kind of take that where we make it the norm instead of the exception, then people remember, oh yeah, that's right. I'm not the template for for the sport. Um, there's all sorts of athletes in the sport. And isn't it great that we can all enjoy this wonderful sport together? Absolutely. And Susie, you're reminding me of um, my son. So he is, uh, he was recently diagnosed over the summer with ADHD in particular. Um, but prior to his diagnosis, we always knew that he really struggled with reading. And so one of the strategies that we've used with him is both the, um, many of the apps have um, the readings where he can actually read the screen of his favorite book, uh, but also the book is being read to him. So he can both hear it and see it at the same time as far as reinforcement and the universal design that Lisa has mentioned is that it benefits all kids, whether it's my kid that has ADHD or a child that does not, it still benefits everyone. And so I love that call out that you bring up around the transcription piece of truly being inclusive because then uh, most times if you do have a transcription, then it's able to be uh, transcribed into other languages, which would be lovely as well. I know I'm creating work for someone, <laughs> but um, but that's something to consider. Um, but one of the things I want to circle back to something that we were talking about before, and I struggle with this and I need a little bit of help kind of thinking out loud about it because there is kind of this fine line between inspiration porn, but also representing a group of athletes as well, because I'm thinking about a, you know, let's say there is a deafblind future triathlete out there that's like, yeah, I'd love to do it, but I've, I counted myself out or I didn't think that it, the environment would even um, wrap around me in a way that I could possibly be part of that uh, group. Uh, you know, they're watching Kona like we were on the couch with the chips. Um, and so, you know, what's, how do you navigate that fine line between not being inspiration porn to be used by people, uh, by the majority, um, but also too being very proud of who you are and the totality of who you are um, at, at the same time? Because I, I think it's a very, I mean, the thinnest of lines between the two, how do you navigate that? I think really you just have to be authentic in your storytelling rather than reaching for the story, rather than trying to say, okay, we need to find somebody who has a disability so that we can illustrate how they overcame all these obstacles. Um, you know, instead just build people with disabilities into your marketing campaign, for example. Um, Hoka, actually does a really good job of this. Uh, lately, they've been putting together some really great advertisements and um, campaigns, and they just naturally include all types of athletes in their campaign. It's really, really well done. Um, and I was actually, I, I met some of the people who worked on that campaign at an event 
stuck when we still had events. And um, and I, I thank them for that because I said, I'm so tired of inspiration porn. I'm so tired of, well, if they can do it, you can do it. And um, what they did was they simply put people with different skin colors, put people with different body types, put people with different abilities and disabilities into the campaign. And that's what we need to do overall, I think. Instead of only showing, showing athletes from underrepresented populations and stories about their differences, um, just bring them into everything you do. Um, display them as coaches, display them as experts, display them as athletes in your general content. Um, and, and that helps us to see that this truly is an inclusive sport instead of only celebrating the athletes for being different in some way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's if representation matters, right? So if you start to broaden the net of who you are representing as a triathlete, then a, a person with a disability or um, a person of color ceases to be an exception, right? Or exceptional. And then we have, um, we start to shift the narrative about what is quote unquote normal in triathlon. Um, part of the problem is that there's such a, a monolithic image right now, um, primarily, yeah, white male, um, tall, um, s muscly, sculpted, right, or at least lean, um, <laughs> that uh, you don't, that there's not, there's not really much beyond that. Um, and so it's good that you're bringing up Hoka as an example that folks can uh, turn to. Uh, I had an interesting conversation about inspiration porn with a group of people I was giving a diversity training and I was doing providing some definitions and I included inspiration porn in my definitions and I got a lot of pushback from people so the folks that I was training no one had um, a visible disability no that's not true there was at least one person with a visible disability so I don't know if some folks in the room had invisible disabilities um, but the, the the primary pushback was that I guess I would categorize it as perhaps self-interested. Like I need the inspiration because it helps motivate me and you're being mean by saying that inspiration is bad, right? Which is not what I was saying. Um, and so it's, that's very, it was a very interesting dynamic to me. I didn't anticipate getting so much resistance around um, folks understanding that inspiration porn is exploitative, right? Like it's, re it's really problematic, um, much like um, tokenism for folks of color or uh, members of the LGBT community. It's, it's similar, it's of a similar vein, but um, I was, yeah, I was taken aback by that. And that wasn't, that was like last year that I had that conversation. So I think there's clearly some work to do in that area. Absolutely. I but the thing is that adds another layer of pressure, right, to the person who's being exploited. Um, so when I saw up at a race and I then marketed 
for the race as, you know, the person who says she can overcome all obstacles. Um, that puts a, a layer of pressure on me when I'm at the race, right? Because now, not only do I have to finish this thing, but I have to overcome and I have to serve in, as an example and an inspiration for the other people out there. Um, and I did an interesting experiment a couple of years ago because I was just curious about this. Um, but I've been told multiple times that um, when I race, I should wear a, a singlet or some sign that says death on the back so that athletes know when they're passing me that I'm deaf. And even though I have never had a problem in a race that I'm aware of where an athlete has not been able to pass me because I'm deaf, because races tend to be, you know, especially triathlon, when you pass somebody, you know, it's pretty clear where you can go. So I've never had a problem with people passing me. Um, but nobody's really yelled at me. Nobody's really gotten frustrated with me that I'm aware of on the race course. Um, but for one race, I said, you know what, just for shits and giggles, I'll put a sign on my back that says death. I just want to see what happened. People were so nice to me. Like, they went out of their way to tap me on the shoulder and give me a thumbs up and sign to me, um, say good job, all these things. I don't know sign language. I don't know a single word of sign language. Um, and also what I noticed was that the way that people talk to me, and I've seen this so many times in my life, they talk to me like I had a cognitive disability, like I was mentally retarded. Um, I'm not. And yet people treated me like I was. And so yes, even though they were nice to me, you could tell it was their own self-interest. They wanted to feel good about the fact that while they were on the course, they talked to some retarded athlete um, and told them that they were doing a good job. And over the miles, I could just feel my self-confidence shrinking. Um, you know, and, and everything in my body just kind of slouched and, and you know, just kind of caved in. And I didn't enjoy that race. I felt different that whole race. Um, and, and so it was something I'll never do again. I'm glad I did it because I learned a lot. And um, at the time when I pitched that story to, um, to an outlet, uh, I was told nobody wants to read that experience because that one counter to inspiration porn. Um, and, and so the fact that my experiences on the course as an athlete were not valid because it doesn't fit the narrative of what the sport is supposed to be about was really just crushing. I mean, it, it was like a punch to the gut. And um, again, I wish I could say I'm mad about it, but I'm so used to it. And so many people with disabilities are so used to it that we just say, okay, well, that's just the way it is. No, you're just reminding me of a story of a, um, a triathlete here in my area. Um, and I'm, I'm going to make this story even more complex, Susan and Lisa. Um, this particular athlete, um, this particular athlete is deaf. And this particular athlete is also a black male. And what was so interesting is that, you know, going back to what you were saying, Susan, about, you know, being a very accomplished triathlete, well, human being, number one, uh, but triathlete as well, um, the very same thing was going on with him where he was riding along in a particular area of our state um, and someone got a little bit too close and treated him a certain way while he was on his bike. And then he later posted on the, um, the city Facebook page of endurance athletes that, Hey, I was out in this space at this time. And whoever was, you know, 
the stupid person that did what they did to me. I know exactly who you are. I have your license plate number, all these other things. The moment that that person found out that he was deaf, all of a sudden it was different treatment. It was, you know, now I have to apologize. Now I have to do all these other things. This person was uh, going uh, going to do a, a 140.6 and so did all these special things to, you know, it, it was a performative apology after apology after apology after this person found out that the gentleman was deaf. And so in my brain that has constantly played out around here we go with oppression Olympics, right? You know, which, which oppression do we want to haggle with right now? Because this person um, didn't think too much of the gentleman who, you know, as he was perceived as a black male. Um, but once this other invisible identity came forward, then all of a sudden there was this change in perspective and, oh, it's not right to treat this person a certain way because they are deaf, but it was okay for you to treat this person a certain way when he was only black or only black male. But when this person was black male and deaf, now we have a different scenario. And so it just constantly gives me this level of skepticism, Susan, where I'm like, uh, what's your motives there? And why are you doing that? Because, you know, with the invisible identities of folks, that's when you get to really see who people are versus when I show up black, I can't unzip my black suit. I get whatever you give me in that moment. And it is what it is versus, and, and, and I'm not trying to make the identities too compete, but I am saying that there's this overlay, that Venn diagram of complexity of what happens when you add this additional layer. And, you know, I'm imagining, but please, you know, share with us if you've also had some type of prism or different view as a woman who is also deaf, are, are, is there any interplay with other identities um, that go along with the deafness? So I'd be happy to. Um, you know, so about a year ago, I moved away from the state where I was living prior to my current home. And um, I had been living in Utah for about four years. Um, Utah is a really unique place to live uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, but a big one is the fact that the Mormon faith is the predominant population there. And um, they have some interesting views about gender and, and sex and, um, well, a lot of things. Um, disability as well. And so accepting in that space as a female, not only a female, but a female who had a doctorate, um, I also teach human sexuality, which um, is, in Utah, a very interesting topic to teach. Um, and I'm a person who is deaf. So I am an educated woman who teaches a controversial topic and I also have a disability. There were layers upon layers upon layers of why people treated me so differently there. And there would be times where people would start talking to me and like you said, the oppression Olympics, why are they judging me today? Like what's the thing that they're picking on? Is it the fact that I'm a doctor? Is it the fact that, you know, I teach this topic? Is it the fact that I'm deaf? Um, and sometimes even mid-conversation, you would see things shift. Um, and so someone might start talking to me, for example, and um, maybe be mansplaining something to me. And then um, when I would begin talking in response, they would get my accent and they would realize, oh, wait. And then they would start talking to me differently. Not normally, but they would treat me differently because I was deaf. And mm -hmm. so you could just see that weird, like, carousel, right, of, of how people would treat me based 
teeth and what their perceptions were of me and the information that they had collected about me during the conversation. And um, so it was fascinating, I'll say that. And and I loved my time in Utah. I'm not saying that Utah is like that that horrible place to live and, and Mormons are gonna attack you if you're different. Um, but it was just a different place to live. And that was the first time really in my whole life where I felt that simply by accepting I was a burden on society. Um, it was really hard for me to get accommodations in Utah. And um, there was one time I did a radio interview um, because I was promoting a book. And um, they asked me if I would be willing to do a panel interview on being deaf in Utah. And I said, yeah, sure, I guess, you know, that's kind of random, but sure, I'm down. And they said, great, can you invite some of your deaf friends to be on the panel? And I was like, I have no deaf friends. <laughs> um, yeah, and so wow. to just make that assumption that I was just surrounded by deaf people. Um, but they did, um, the panel ended up not happening because they couldn't find anybody else willing to speak on their experience. But they did locate another person who, um, was deaf and he told the story about how when he was a child he lost his hearing and being raised in the Mormon church um, they placed such a premium on protection there that um, it was really challenging for him and he told the story about how one time when he was in Sunday school he was misbehaving and the teacher in the Sunday school room said that's why God made you deaf because you're a naughty boy and so, you know, it's really shocking to hear and yet not at all shocking that people just attribute certain things to you based on your condition. Maybe it's because you're black, maybe it's because you're deaf, maybe it's because, you know, you have, um, maybe your leg is amputated and you use the prosthetic limb or whatever it is, we just convey our opinions on your worth as a person. And it's just so shocking to me when you describe the um, the friend of yours who had that close call on the bike. All I can think of is why not just be nice to everybody? Like, why can't we just make that the default? Is it possible that we could just not be a dick regardless of who we're interacting with? Um, that's what I don't get about this world. It, it, it seems like the easiest thing to do is to just be kind to other people, to be, um, you know, helpful and, and assume the best about people. But um, instead, we only default to the nice when we think that we've done something wrong, when we learn that, oh, well, he's deaf, oh, now I'm the asshole. No, you were the asshole when you wrote that person off the road. Um, and and mm -hmm. so it's, it's just really interesting to me to see how people change based on the information they get. Yeah, I think that's the quote of the day. Don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, it, it reminds me of that book I'm telling you about all the time, Lisa, the um, the book I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual by Lovey Ajayi. Um, she is a Nigerian-American woman that wrote this book about just how to be a better human being, period. You know, just be better. And it, it sounds like we might need some of that similar language in endurance sport and the world of triathlon. It's just mm -hmm. how to be better to each other, how to be better. Um, kind, not in the um, 
in the calm civility way, but kind in the I'm proactively being kind to you. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to run you off the road no matter what. I, you know, <laughs> and it, it sounds so simple that oh, how can we embrace people just, um, just by being better human beings to each other would be a great start. Um, you know, when, when was it ever okay to run any cyclist off the road? You know, if right. you saw, you know, a five-year-old kid on their tricycle, you wouldn't run them off the road. So what makes you think it's okay to run anybody off the road? It, it just, mm -hmm. I, I'm just really interested in how everyone can be more human um, and more, um, embracing of everyone without having this knee-jerk response of, okay, I'm reading that you're this type of person. Let me put you in these categories. And if it's a category that I don't really care for, then I'm going to uh, perform in a less humane way. But if it's a category that, oh my goodness, I'm going to care about that category, then all of a sudden, I'm just this wonderful person to you. And it's, it's almost like a Jekyll and Hyde type situation. I'm a completely different person mm -hmm. to that individual. It's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's a bit patronizing, right? It's I, I find out that you have a disability um, and then I'm now sickly sweet, apologetic and nice to you. That's very patronizing. And it kind of circles back a little bit to your comment, Susan, around um, people making the assumption that because you're deaf, you will also have an intellectual or developmental disability. And then so then so breaking that off and then thinking about how we treat individuals who have intellectual and developmental disabilities, right? Again, we assume that they are less capable, that they're not able to do um, the same things as folks who are uh, do not experience those disabilities. And so, it, it, you know, so we've got, I think this conversation is really hopefully highlighted for listeners, that prism, that intersection and the ways in which identities are interacting and the assumptions that we're making about people and how damaging that can be. And I do just want to add, again, thinking about this systems piece, because Susan's brought it up, Sean has brought it up, that we are a product of systems, right? And Robin D'Angelo has said in relation to whiteness, it's not whether you've been affected by um, the system of white supremacy, it's how you've been affected. And so I think that that's a good starting place, especially when we're thinking about ability too, right? We live in an ableist society that assumes able-bodiedness is normal and everything is constructed around that. Um, and then, so how have you been affected by it? Not whether you've been affected by it. What assumptions are you making? And how are you folding those assumptions into your daily life and language, right? And uh, before we got on the uh, interview today, Susan had corrected my language because I had used, said something like, uh, um, uh, a person who identifies as deaf and uh that is not necessarily the most appropriate way to articulate deaf um because it's as, as though it's a an add-on and i think susan you use the example of you don't say i identify as having cancer right so kind of a similar um refrain i'm wondering if you would elaborate a little bit more because i do think language is very important and i've definitely evolved in my language choices around this i tend to say disabled people now versus people with disabilities based on some readings that I have done written by disabled people about why that is preferable. So I'm not sure if you have any thoughts. We could maybe wrap up with some comments on the power of language in this area. And Lisa, could I also add on to your question too? Uh, that's one thing that I've been wrestling with as well. Um, it, it's kind of wrapping together the 
correction on language, but also the correction on highlighting the system and not the individual. Um, Susan, we talked before in a previous podcast or a couple of podcasts ago that um, one of my graduate students many years ago corrected my language on, no, that person was not a slave. That was a human being who was enslaved. And so how do I correct that? And so I'm just working very hard to highlight that there's an, an entire system that needs attention. And so I'm wondering how we can kind of fold Lisa and I, our questions into one, you know, how do we acknowledge people the way in which they would like to be acknowledged, but also acknowledge the system that um, keeps us where we are, which may not be the best of places to be. I feel like language is one of those minefields where, you know, like, you have to be really careful when you enter it. Um, you don't want to say the wrong thing. You, you don't want to do the wrong thing. But I can speak from experience in saying that if someone uses the wrong terminology, I'll be quick to correct them. But if they use offensive terminology, um, then I get scared. Because, for example, there are still people in this world who use deaf and dumb. And um, when they use that terminology, automatically I shut down because like, how do you respond to that? You know, even mm -hmm. if you say, no, I prefer death because, you know, or I'm not dumb, like, you're, you're opening the, the box where you have to explain yourself and your existence as a human being. Um, and, and the thing with disability too is that it exists on a spectrum, right? Um, I'm deaf, but I still have some healing. And yet uh, people think I'm faking it. Um, when, when I'm speaking or that when I'm able to do things like podcasts. In actuality, I'm just relying on luck and the breathing, mostly. Um, but there are people who, they have about the same amount of hearing loss as me, um, but they don't speak and they use sign language. And so we're both deaf individuals and yet we're not the same. Right? We have different experiences moving through this world. Um, you know, we see that uh, most blind people have some vision. Uh, most people who are wheelchair users are physically capable of, of standing and maybe even walking. Do we really have to do this thing, though, where we say you are not really disabled because you sit in a wheelchair, but you can walk to your car? Um, or, you know, you say you're blind, but it's that you do have some vision. Um, you know, so we try to catch people in the act, right? We try to say, no, you're not really disabled because a real person with a disability is deaf. Um, so, you know, when, when we talk about me being deaf, I say I'm deaf, but um, sometimes when people ask for clarification, um, so they say, oh, do you mean healing impaired? Because you can talk, they say, no, I'm deaf. My ears, they do not work. Um, I am lip reading you right now. There's really no way around it. I'm deaf, I'm not hearing compared. But I also sometimes will educate people on the distinction between big D and little d deaf. Um, and so within the deaf community, for example, um, there are people who are part of the deaf culture. Uh, they may go to school for the school for the deaf, they may have parents who are also deaf, or they have families who sign with them. They, um, and they really have their deaf identity as a point of pride. And I'm not part of that community. I have been told I'm not welcome in that community because I have a hearing aid and because I, I talk and I look weird. And so that is viewed as being ashamed of being deaf and trying too hard to be normal. And so um, I 
have the healing impairment. I am deaf medically, but I'm not the D-deaf as a, a cultural identity. And so I'm little D-deaf. And so when we talk about language and identifiers, you know, just choosing the right word is more complicated than it would seem on the surface. But in general, it's always a good idea if you ask people. You know, if you are, and, and you used the example before this podcast started, you said, you know, would you like me to say I identify as deaf? And I said, no, I'm deaf. I, I am. I don't identify as I am. Um, but someone else might have a different answer. You know, someone else might say, you know, I prefer hearing impaired. Or they, they might have a different way of, uh, of being preferred as a, a descriptor, I should say. Um, and, and that's okay. You have the right to set your terms about who you are and how people talk about you. And so it, it is a mind, minefield, it is complicated, but a lot can be calmed and a lot can be um, really made more clear if you just ask instead of assuming because then when people assume they fill in the blanks and they've already constructed their viewpoint of the person that's being yeah. described and um, they pass on that viewpoint and everybody else takes on that viewpoint. Um, so no, I don't identify as deaf. Please don't refer to me as that. I am deaf. Um, and, and so we have to be really careful about being clear about the way we talk about people. And the best way to do that is to just ask that person, how do you prefer? What's your terminology? Um, is it okay if I say this? Is this accurate? Mm -hmm. I think that's really important because I, I do think that for folks with uh, privileged identities, so able-bodied, white, male, right? I think there can sometimes be a fear of even asking the question. Because if I ask the question, perhaps you will perceive me as rude or offensive or ignorant. And so then I don't ask the question and then I just kind of stumble along and invariably perhaps make a bigger error that's more harmful because I, that could have been resolved if I just asked the question in the first place. Absolutely. I'm more likely to think you're rude or ignorant when you just assume about me. I don't think you're rude or ignorant for asking. I appreciate you asking. Um, that's so that you want to see me as a person, that you want to see me as an individual. Thank you. That means a lot. Um, but when you just go in and just make assumptions, or if in some cases I have people, they meet me, they realize I'm deaf, they start signing to me. And then I have to explain to them, I don't know sign language. And then I have to answer questions like, well, then how do you communicate? And then I have to say things like, what do you think we're doing right now? We're communicating. Um, and by the time I get to that point, I think you're a complete idiot. Please get from me. Um, and, and so we can avoid all of that frustration if you were just talk to me the way I'm talking to you. And then if you know sign language, not making up sign language, that's the worst. But if you know sign language, you can offer that. You, you can say, I'm fluent in sign language. Would it be helpful if we conversed in sign language? Then I could say, no, thank you. I'm good. I don't have to explain myself to you. I don't have to explain why I don't know sign language. I don't have to explain how I learned to lip read. I don't have to go through that whole thing. It's exhausting. And by the time that conversation is over, you've stopped looking at me as a person and started looking at me as some weird fascination that you can't wait to tell your spouse about when you get home. 
Um, and that's sorry, that's a little sorry feeling. Yeah, that actually connects really nicely to Shona's question about the system, right? I think in that the assumptions that we're making and having asking people with disabilities to explain themselves right? Like in the context of a race, explain why you need this, justify to me why we have to quote unquote, bend the rules for you, right? Like, um, again, coming back to that fairness piece, there's the system that's like snapping back to kind of reinforce who's normal and who's not and who belongs and who doesn't belong. And as you just identified, Susan, it's exhausting. Um, and that's certainly not just an experience of disabled folks, right? That's an experience um, for folks with any identity that is marginalized in some way in our culture. Um, and I think there's the interplay, right, between the system and the individual and how that harms people who are constantly having to justify their existence. And I, I don't, that's not hyperbole, right, because you've articulated that a couple of times that so often people with privilege ask folks who are marginalized in some way to justify their existence. Um, and I think that that is a place that we really need to move away from. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if we can get to a place where um, the default setting is that people are different, deal with that, as opposed to, well, let's try to figure out what's different about them, why they're different, how can we fix them, um, you know, then we can, I think we could get a lot more free time um, if we could just operate from this place of, okay, people are different, that's that. Um, one of the things that I noticed when I moved away from Utah and back to Arizona is that nobody really notices I have an accent here. And if they do, they don't say anything about it. People don't ask me stupid questions now that I'm in Arizona because as one of my friends likes to say, in Arizona, we're all a little off. Um, we all have something different about us. And um, I love that. And that's really made a difference for me because I no longer feel self-conscious about walking up to a person and starting a conversation with them. Um, at least I didn't before the pandemic and everybody had masks on. But, um, mm -hmm. but even, even now, I, I don't feel unsafe in Arizona. I don't feel like uh, I'm being singled out and people are going to ask me dumb questions. I think that one of the last drives for me in Utah was when I was at the grocery store one time. I was checking out and this woman who was checking me out um, started talking to me and she realized that I was deaf and she asked me, if my husband was embarrassed that I was deaf. And I was like, no, I give him plenty of things to be embarrassed about. Um, I just wanted to make a 5K, maybe we could talk about that instead. Um, but you know, no, he's not embarrassed by the fact that I'm deaf. And that people would even ask me that, you know, it, it says a lot about them and the culture in which they're raised. If you're different, that's embarrassing. You should lock everybody different in the basement. Um, and, and so that was really hard for me. And now that I'm back in a, in a circumstance where for more or less I'm treated as normal um, or nobody treats me as less than because I have this accent and the hearing name, um, it's just, I'm able to breathe a little bit more and that's really nice. And I wish, that was the case all the time. I wish that was the case everywhere I went. I wish that was the case for anybody with a disability, that they not have to answer stupid questions, that they not have to um, deal with ignorant people, that they could just go about their day and exist in the world without having to 
do extra work in order to reach the same level that everybody else got to. Well, I'm, I think what's so profound about this uh, entire conversation, number one, lots of things that I didn't know that I'm discovering because I hope to be a forever student. Um, but the, the other piece too is that, you know, you've created this way to live out your shirt. Um, for those that are listening to this podcast right now, her shirt says, nevertheless, she persisted. Um, and I'm so appreciative of that because I think that's also an entire system of folks, if you will, who are pushing against the status quo system. So it's kind of like two con two controversial systems going on here, one that's maintaining and the other one that's saying, no, let's tear all this mess up. Um, and I think that's what's so profound is that we need more people wearing your short your shirt doing exactly what you're doing around yes, I know there's resistance all around. I'm either going to address it head on and be confrontational about it, um, but but I'm, I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to ignore um, the challenges that are in place because obviously, um, again, there's an entire system that needs to be what we've been saying, Lisa and I've been talking about this dismantling of systems. So don't just, you know, run a Mack truck through it, if you will, but dismantle it to examine it. So we know how not to duplicate it and rebuild it again. Um, despite all this work, I, I feel like if we don't look at these systems, then we're going to persist for no reason because they'll come back in a different way. It, for, for whatever reason, it will come back in a different way. So how do we keep that from happening? Absolutely. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about how I'm usually the first deaf person that people have ever talked to. And um, so it is an honor to be able to take some of those stereotypes and throw them out the window. Um, and, and I don't have to do that deliberately. I can do that just by accepting. And, um, you know, one of the things that really got me through during my time in Utah when I was feeling really out of place for a long time um, was that every day I could go into my classroom and I could teach the 30 students that were in there um, the topic of the day, but also that as a deaf woman, I have knowledge, I have authority, um, I have a personality, I have humanity, and every day for 30 students at a time, I could be a model for existing in this world and not being questioned about it. Because my students knew if they asked me dumb questions, it probably wouldn't go well for them. If they, um, so they were forced every day to sit in that chair and listen mm -hmm. to me talk. And you could see from the first day of class, you know, where they would all look at each other like, oh my God, what, what do we say? What do we do? She retarded, what's happening? Um, and then over time, it was just to, she's really cool. I'm learning a lot from her. I'm gonna take another class class with her. And that's when I knew that I was doing it right. Um, and, and so every day, 30 students at a time, I could chip away. And hopefully they would go into the world and they would treat people with disabilities or pe treat people who were different in some way with respect, mm -hmm. with kindness, um, with a lot of the the positive attributes that I hope I instilled in them. And I never once had to say, please don't treat me differently because I'm deaf. I never had to say, don't be a dick. I never had to do anything so blatant other than accept. And, um, you know, 
that's the thing that got me out of bed every morning. And even today with my writing, um, I don't write often about being deaf um, or, or having a disability. Sometimes I do, and um, sometimes I get pushed back on it. Uh, I, I recently wrote a piece for NBC about what it's like to be a deaf person uh, in a world where everybody's wearing masks. And I got some pushback on, well, why should we accommodate you? There's, there's hardly any deaf people. And I also got some people who um, took it to the extreme and they said that people with disabilities are a drain on society and my mother sort of aborted me. And um, that was really hurtful and yet, there were more people out there who said, I had never even considered that, thank you. And that's the thing that gets me up in the morning. That's mm. the thing that keeps me going. Like you said, I don't have to drive a Mack truck through the world in order, order to change it. Um, but I do need to get up every single day and I need to exist, I need to own my place in this world um, in whatever way that is. And today I'm probably not gonna leave my house because everybody's wearing a mask and I hate that, but I can still change the world by being on this podcast. I can still change the world by you know, writing stories about people who have various uh, differences and, and who, you know, are, are existing in this world in a wonderful way. Um, and I don't have to make it a big thing. I'm just doing my job. I'm just loving my life. Um, I'm just persisting. Well, that's fantastic. And I think that's a perfect place for us to wrap up this wonderful conversation that has just been enlightening, educational, thought provoking. Mm -hmm. I definitely learned a lot today. And I really appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Susan Leakey, um, for being here with Shauna and I and sharing your experiences and your perspectives with us and our audience. Um, if you have comments, questions, um, please don't hesitate to email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com. We will drop um, some links uh, for further reading into the show notes for this podcast so that if you're interested in learning more about ableism, ableism in triathlon or endurance sport or just kind of uh, thinking about this more deeply, we hope that this podcast has nudged you in that direction. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Tri. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.